ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Barrett. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. Foregrounding of questions of racial equality, but also he put them in a very kind of anti-colonisation kind of context, in a very international context. It wasn't just a local sort of welfare or something context. It was very much about power and empire and, you know, racial inequality. Anne Kerthoy's on the Freedom Ride, Rottnest Island and Paul Robeson's visit. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Anne Kerthoy's is an historian who's done a lot of work around First Nations history and politics. She's not Indigenous, but she's been an active supporter of Aboriginal rights since she was a uni student. Anne was at Sydney University in the 1960s with Charles Perkins. When he organised the Freedom Ride, she was one of the students who got on board. For more than two weeks, the bus toured New South Wales Towns protesting racial segregation. I first came to know Anne through my father. He'd grown up being schooled in a version of history that portrayed Aboriginal people as disappearing into the ether or impeding the development of Australia. And as a child, it had made him feel ashamed. So as an adult, he had discovered the work of Australian historians that told a different history. Henry Reynolds, Peter Reid, Anne McGrath, and of course, Anne Kerthoys. Their work changed his understanding of Australian history and himself and encouraged him to undertake oral history on our own traditional country. So I had known Anne since that time, but it was her book, Freedom Ride, A Freedom Rider Remembers, that had a profound impact on me. Her mix of history and memoir influenced the kind of scholar I wanted to be. And over the years, we've become friends. More recently, Anne's been digging around in the history of Wadjamup or Rottnest Island. That's the small white sand island off the coast of Perth where tourists go to see furry quokkas. But it's got a harrowing history that's only recently being recognised. The book Anne co-wrote, The Lives and Legacies of a Carceral Island, was published last year. But Anne's current project is also on another fascinating little-known history. She's been exploring the historical significance of a visit to Australia by African-American musician and activist Paul Robeson in 1960. The singer, actor, football star and one-time lawyer was surprised to find he had a cult-like status here and in New Zealand. Fans asked for songs he barely remembered the words to. Robeson resonated with working-class white and black audiences and Anne has been researching why and how for a new book. Anne Kerthoys, welcome to Speaking Out. Well, hello. I'm very <laughs> pleased to be here. I gave you quite the introduction, <laughs> so I hope I you're feeling at home. <laughs> now, one of the things we always start off with at Speaking Out is to ask people where they grew up with and what their influences were. So um, I think that would be wonderful to hear from you a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and what really influenced you in terms of your values and your love of history. Well... Well, I spent the first seven years of my life in Broken Hill and that's where I went to infant school and I have very strong memories of the desert and and the sort of the visual images I've got really of Broken Hill. But we moved to Newcastle when I was seven. My father was an academic teaching chemistry, but both my parents were in the Communist Party and that had an influence on my childhood. I think in terms of some of the things we're talking about today, it's really my mother's influence. 
um, and her involvement, particularly in this organisation called the Union of Australian Women, which was a very left-wing, um, sort of pro-communist influenced uh, women's organisation. But one of the issues that it took on, particularly in the, about the second half of the 1950s onwards, um, was sort of Aboriginal rights, Aboriginal equality, as women's, what they called then women's equality. So they were the two issues that were very strong in my background. But of course, there are lots of other things. I think most people who grew up in that kind of background comment on how international people's thinking was. So how much you knew about the world or, you you know, you knew little bits about the world, at least. You understood that, that you weren't only in Australia, you were part of the world in a way, in a very sort of international sense. So that's the other strong influence I think I got. And then then I arrived at Sydney University and as a history student, really, and through that, not, not directly, um, at first it was all British history, that was very fashionable then, but I also was involved in student politics and through that got involved in the freedom right, as you said. So I think the key influence there then is the freedom right itself because from then on, a lot of my, my subsequent work was about racism or Aboriginal activism and also about women's women's activism as well. So that became my two main kind of themes, I think, from then on. What was the university like for you? It sounds like you got in, you said you got involved in politics. You yes. obviously found well, a voice Sy- there. Well, Sydney University, I got there in 63, which is a kind of, I think looking back quite a significant year because it was the first year that there were so many applicants, they had a quota. Until then, anyone who had matriculated, who applied to get in, would get in to Sydney University. So we were the sort of bulge, the first post-war bulge, the beginning of, um, you know, our generation, not really, the the first group. Um, And it's also the year that Charles Perkins and Gary Williams arrived, the two first Aboriginal students at Sydney University. So that was important. And I would say, I think, the difference between when I got there in 63 and when I finished at the end of 66, there's a huge kind of rise in student radicalism in in those few years. Um, And that kept going, you know, right through to the late 60s. So... Yeah, I was involved in the Labor Club at one stage, um, obviously the Freedom Ride and um, Student Action for Aborigines, those kinds of... I mean, clubs and societies were very important then, I think more than they are now as well. Tell us about that experience of going on the Freedom Ride and what it meant for you as a, a young woman uh, going from Sydney University and the background you had and going out into these country towns. Mm. Was it... What were your reflections and your memories of that? Well, I thought I knew what we were going into, partly because of my background. You know, I knew a bit about Aboriginal history and and Aboriginal conditions, but really I didn't know anything. And that's what I learnt, really. So that seeing the conditions under which people lived and meeting certain kinds of people who I hadn't met before um, really changed my understanding. I think also the experience of being in a group of um, sort of activist students um, was important in itself. I think having an Aboriginal leader and mainly non-Aboriginal students, that was a very important dynamic. Not that we particularly thought it was important, but other people did. And so that what that looked like to white townsfolk or to the media was very important. And it was total reversal of their expectations of how things you know worked. So I came back from the Freedom Ride. I mean, I came back, you know, back into study. Um, so it wasn't immediate that I could carry out some of the ideas there, but 
But it did, when I look back on it, it did influence my choices um, from then on. Yeah, definitely. Did you get a sense at the time that it was so historic and the impact it was having on the places you were visiting? And I I ask that because I interviewed Bob Morgan um, a little while ago for a project and I remember him saying about the Freedom Ride because he was in Walgett when you were there. He was just a young boy and he said, "Um, I can't even, I cannot remember what, what Charles Perkins said when he came there, but I'll never forget how it made me feel. Is that interesting? Yeah, yeah I think it was very important, um, particularly actually mentioning Bob Morgan, I mean, particularly for the sort of teenagers who could witness all this. I think a lot of older people were very suspicious because this actually was a group of mainly white people. They're quite right to be suspicious. But the teenagers and um, even slightly younger, those, you know, 11, 12, that's the kind of group that really resonated to, and kind of hung around us and wanted to know who we are and what, what are you about. And, and some of them would play basketball and they played games and they reacted in that particular way. So, and I mean, I was only 19. We weren't that old. We were teenagers ourselves. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of different things to say about it too, I think. One of the things we did was go on a survey. So when we went to towns, we'd go around and talk to people. And we had our survey, which we never wrote up the way we intended to. But it was a way of actually meeting people, talking, getting responses. And although I think, look, a lot of it was probably, we were amateurs as as interviewers, but we did, you did actually talk to people. And that was important. You weren't just sort of demonstrating in the street or carrying out a pre-arranged political action. You actually had to interact and get some sense so that you learned in some towns it just wasn't right to do anything. There wasn't the support. People were too afraid. In other towns, people really welcomed and really wanted us to do something. So it was picking up on that that those different kinds of responses, I think, was important. You kept a diary at the time, which I loved. And, of course, that helped you when decades later you mm-hmm. came to write Freedom Rider, Freedom Rider Remembers, which um, I mentioned in the introduction, a wonderful book that mixes memory with history. And I was just wondering if you can reflect on when it did become time to write it and what you were able to reflect on and what it meant to go back and have that diary from all those years ago. <laughs> Well, just on the diary, one good thing about it is that there was no privacy on the bus. So you couldn't pour out your private thoughts or you couldn't say if somebody was irritating you or, you know, any of the things you might write in a diary. It had to be something that if somebody found it and read it, you wouldn't be completely embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) So it had had to be relatively, um, you know, um, accessible to a white, you know, and so much later, years later, that turned out to be a good thing. I didn't really think about writing about it till the late 80s. So that's a long time after, from 65 to the late 80s. I think a couple of things were prompting me. I think one was the, the um, bicentenary in 88 and the sort of uprise in Aboriginal politics and Aboriginal activism in general and and, and sort of public discourse, the, the and so on. And the other one was a quite personal thing that Peter Reid was writing his biography or researching his biography of Charles Perkins. And in the course of that, he came to interview me because I knew him as a historian um, and, and he knew that I'd been on the Freedom Ride. So he was just getting a perspective of what it was like for the other students. But after that interview, I did sort of think, I mean, you know, I should really write something about this. I've got, I've got more to say. 
But what I didn't really um, realise is the long haul from that thought to actually doing the research and finally finishing the book. So I would say 88, 89, somewhere around there. The book came out in 2002, so it was quite a long process. It does make me feel better because my books always take a really <laughs> long time as well. What was the response to the book when it came out? It's such an important, significant moment and I find often whatever the topic is and I'm making a film, in some way I'll go back to the archive and need to put the Freedom Rides in there somehow. Such an iconic moment. What, how was the book received? Um, it was received pretty well and it did quite well in terms of getting nominated for prizes and winning one prize. And a lot, yeah, a lot of a lot of good feedback, I think. But on the other hand, I you probably agree with this. I don't know. An author never really knows how their books are being received because a part of you almost, you know, you think, well, that book's out there; it's going to do its stuff, and I can't control that. So you kind of let it you let it roll, and you don't quite know how people are reading it. Well, I confessed at the beginning of the interview that I found it quite profound, not just because it was a moment in history that was really important and to more deeply understand what what the Freedom Rides meant and something that I'd known as part of our folklore in a way to get that insight. But I really loved that way that an historian could put themselves so deeply into a story but still maintain something that was deeply scholastic. That was a very... Um, fine balance to to do, but I think it was very successful. It made it much more engaging, much more real. And I think from a First Nations point of view, we're always interested in somebody's connection to what they're talking about. That's why we start off our shows with where are you from and what, what shaped you. That's why we ask each other, where are you from? I feel like one of the things that you really showed in that work was how important it is for people or how it can strengthen a piece of work to show your positionality to it. Well, that's interesting because it actually was very hard to do and it was not fashionable at the time. No, that's why probably why I loved it because <laughs> it wasn't fashionable. And um, in fact, one review said she should have written two books, a proper history book and a memoir. You know, there's no. People who didn't get it Don't at all. Don't listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> and I did have trouble, like I had trouble thinking, will I refer to the students as they or we? Or, you know, finding the voice to express the fact that I was both a historian and a participant, quite difficult. But I kind of got there in the end. But I think it's one reason it took me quite a while to write it. I couldn't quite get those two um, positions clear. And then once you get it, it's easy, actually. Once you hit on how to do it, it just comes out. The yeah. rest follows, but it's finding that because, it, well, as you said, it was a it was kind of ground. It can seem like such a simple thing when we're talking about it now, but at the yeah. time, it was quite a groundbreaking thing within within the disciplines. Yeah, almost shocking, one might say, and <laughs> almost shocking. Um, more recently, you wrote the lives and legacies of a Castrol Island, a biographical history of Wajimup Rottnest Island with Shino Kanishi and Alexandra Ludwig. So I just wonder if you could start by um, a lot of people don't know that that deeper, darker history of it. So can you tell us a little bit about how and when the island was first used to incarcerate First Nations people? Yes. Well, I could be quite precise. 1838. <laughs> I <laughs> love, <a> pre <laughs> love precision in, my, in the answers um, to questions. That's there had been a bit of talk through the 1830s about this is on the new, you know, British colony in Western Australia, very, very isolated. Um, Aboriginal people are resisting in various ways and kind of involving things like raids on flour mills and, you know, stealing a pig and, you know, all sorts of things. How are we going to sort of 
quell, quell this population that it doesn't want us to be here. And the idea of putting people on an island is very strong in British culture. I mean, in a way, Australia itself is a product of, the, of that transportation to an island far away. We're an island. Um, and so the whole idea of incarceration on islands is really strong in British culture and in, in legal history, the whole idea of transportation across the seas. So when they're thinking about incarceration, the idea of using an island um, is, comes up. And first of all, they talk about some of the other islands there. There's another one called Garden Island and Karnak Island, but they didn't have enough water and they wouldn't be usable. Grotnest Island was usable. So in the end, what's his name? Henry Vincent, um, who becomes the, the main commandant for quite a long time on the island, he, in a sense, puts these ideas together, pr presents them to the um, to the governor and his executive council, and they decide yes, yes, we'll turn this this island into a prison. And another thing that was pushing it is that their attempts to keep Aboriginal people in jail on the mainland were not very successful. I mean, people were escaping quite a lot, um, and there was also the threat of disease and so forth. So that incarceration would mean people would get ill and die. So they're looking for another way of controlling people, and so the island becomes what they think is their solution. And so it starts in 1838. It's suspended for a little while in the early 1850s when British convicts start um, coming to the colony, um, and they really want Aboriginal those Aboriginal men who have been kept on the island, they want them out back on the mainland to be labourers, building roads and so forth and supporting the sort of population growth that British convicts are bringing with them. But it reopens in 1855 and then it stays open right up to 1902. So it's a quite a long history and even after 1902, it's an annex of the Fremantle Jail and it's still used um, to some extent with using Aboriginal prisoners for particular purposes. So, I mean, the numbers aren't huge at any one time, but it kind of adds up. So the numbers at any one time might range from 50 to 250, those sorts of numbers, but people coming and going. And so it really, it's, it's almost 4,000 um, prisoners over that period of time. And I think one of the things that's so strong you, when you live in Perth, as I did for a while, um, it's so strong in Noongar memory um, about the sort of brutal brutal conditions on the island, particularly the forced labour aspects. That's what I think was one of the – well, the incarceration itself, the isolation from community is probably the worst thing, but the next worst thing is the forced labour that was very, very strong. So you, it's always interesting, isn't it, because you mentioned that this was something that was still quite strong in Noongar memory but had kind of been written out of other histories. Mm. Um, you also mentioned that um, stealing was one of the offences that people were put, were put in prison for. Mm. What were some of the other things that um, Aboriginal men were locked up for? Stealing, a tax on cattle or sheep, um, you know, interfering with stock. That's really important because this is pastoralism, um, protecting pastoralism and Aboriginal people are, they're wanting to use them as labour but they don't want them to, you know, steal or kill sheep. So that's, a, that's an important thing. Um, and the other one is carrying out what you might call tribal law or carrying out, you know, Indigenous law that contradicts um, English law. And the imposition of English law is a really high priority, which took me a while to realise when I was looking at this that how strong a motivation that, wa that was. Uh, it's really about saying who's boss it's, and as asserting control. Um, so that if somebody did a payback killing, that would be, they would be put on Rottnest Island, that, those kinds of 
things that conform to tribal law but don't conform to that English law. What has it meant from your perspective to have been able to bring this history back out again? We acknowledge that the Noongar have always remembered it, but for um, the broader community who had not been aware of of the um, history of this place, which, as I mentioned, is a place where tourists go to see quokkas, um, what is, from your perspective, why has it been so important and what's the impact of, of bringing this history back into the light? Well... They had, I think actually I should pay tribute to Neville Green, who was a historian who did a lot to bring this history to, to light, but really only in Western Australia. He was very much a local historian, but he did a lot of fantastic research and he did a lot to help bring it um, to, to non-Aboriginal people's knowledge. But what I suppose the, the three of us, well, we're coming along, we're building on his work, but we have access to all sorts of things like trove and internet data that he didn't have at the time. And also our project is slightly different. His was very much about Rottnest Island as a carceral prison, where we're sort of saying there's a longer and bigger history that it's a part of. And, in fact, some of the interest is to see how that carceral thing sits very oddly against other histories, like that it's a summer holiday place for governors, um, which is just insane. I think Western Australians know sort of, well, they're getting to know this history and the main prison on the island was closed in 2018 and that's a real result of a long campaign but also a sign of recognition that this history happened. But I don't think for people outside Western Australia there's a lot known. Um, that's what I find when I talk about it in, <laughs> in over east. But or people usually have heard of it but they don't know much. So I suppose we're also um, bringing that story to a broader audience. It's always interesting, isn't it? As you say, you look at something like this this history of, of the prison there, but there's a history before it and there's a history after it. Mm-hmm. In, this, in relation to this, what are some of the important aspects of understanding it as just a moment in time in a longer story? Yeah. Well, because we look at it through biography, so through individuals, we're able to look at the... And they're often sojourners. They don't stay on Rottnest Island a long time, except for the last chapter the woman who was a nurse and then became the wife of the manager and she she did live on Rottnest for some decades but most of the people were there for a shorter period so they bring with them a whole their own histories if you like so what we tried to do was situate their Rottnest experience within their life more generally and that actually means quite often looking at empire and questions of imperial power if you like because like one of the chapters is about Lady Mary Ann Broom, the wife of a governor who's also an author and a travel writer who writes really well actually but she gives the perspective of the governor's wife and she you know I think grew up in Jamaica you know she had she was an imperial traveller so her rottenest experience is part of a sort of longer imperial kind of story so we're able to bring kind of intimations of empire into it you've also got the first world war and the second world war stuff where it's used as a um, site for um, internees in the first world war and it's also a protection of the Fremantle harbour as a military site in the second world war so there's a kind of german part of it and so i think we were just fascinated by that all these different histories kind of rub up into each other over time 
On that one little island. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could keep talking to you about that, but um, I also wanted to talk to you about the Paul Robeson research you've been doing and the tour that you've been researching for your upcoming book, which I believe is called Meeting the Robesons, Paul Robeson and Aslanda Robeson's Tour of Australia and New Zealand in 1960. That's the working title. That's, that's it. That's, that's it. It, it right? took a while to get there, but that's what it is now. <laughs> now, I've learned from you that Paul got himself through law school, established a singing career, an acting career, a football career, and amidst all of this was a significant activist, which, of course, when you think of the context back in the United States, that's no small achievement on any of those fronts. And, of course, then not surprisingly, he was targeted by the FBI, the CIA, enough to have his passport cancelled, and some say he was even poisoned. So my first question to you about all of this is how did this interesting, intriguing man and his wife end up touring Australia and New Zealand in 1960? Well, he had his passport taken away in 1950 and he didn't get it back till 1958. So um, to start the story back a little bit, I mean, he's hugely famous from about the late 1920s in Showboat, Old Man River, um, all these movies in the 1930s, you know, Sanders of the River and whole lots of movies and lots of singing spirituals, lots of records. People loved the way he sang spirituals. Um, he plays Othello, um, so his performance of Othello. So he's very, very, very famous. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, ABC RN, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. I'm speaking with Anne Kerthoys. She's an historian and author of the book, Freedom Ride, A Freedom Rider Remembers. At the moment, she's exploring the significance of a visit to Australia by African-American musician and activist Paul Robeson in the 1960s. Oh, grieve you now, 
I'm speaking with Anne Kerthoys, an historian who's done a lot of work around First Nations history and politics. In the 1960s, when Charles Perkins organised the Freedom Ride, she was one of the students who got on board. At the moment, she's exploring the significance of a visit to Australia by African-American musician and activist Paul Robeson in the 1960s. In the Cold War context, he's basically confined to the US. He can't travel. And he can't perform in the US either. People won't um, lease venue. He can't hire venues to sing concerts or he can't record in recording studios and so forth. So he gets out in 58 and he goes straight to London, which is where he and Islander lived in the, from 1928 to 39, roughly. They go back to somewhere they know really well and that's their base and so they start travelling. He had always actually wanted, I mean, there'd been mentions of him coming to Australia right through the 1930s. He's very, very popular here. He was on radio, people bought his records, people saw his movies um, and it never quite happened and then the war broke out. So that issue had been there for a while. And then finally the offer came from two New Zealand entrepreneurs who said, you know, offered him a very good offer to do a tour of Australia and New Zealand. And too, too good to refuse, really, in sort of commercial terms. Um, so they both come in, in 1960. And why was the visit to Australia so significant? Well, in his life, in his biography, if you like, it's his last tour. So it's very significant in that way. Um, after it, he becomes ill, there's a suicide attempt, he never really recovers. So it's his last tour and it's a very successful tour in terms of packed out, you know, concerts and praising reviews and people, lo- you know, people love him sort of despite the fact that he's very pro-Soviet and most people are very, you know, anti-Soviet at this time. So there's, there's a complication there but in a way they're so enamoured of his voice and his singing and increasingly his politics to do with um, racial equality and so forth. For, so for Australia and New Zealand... I think it's significant in lots of ways, actually. Um, but the one, I suppose the one I'd point to most is the impact on the Aboriginal activist sort of movement because he picks up the, um, sort of on the question of Aboriginal um, activism and struggles and um, situation and gives it publicity. And I actually got onto it as I realised several of the Freedom Ride students had heard Paul Robeson sing when they were teenagers, when they were about 14. Because the Freedom Ride's five years later, um, so they're 19 being doing Freedom Ride. But at this point, they're kind of teenagers getting very, I think, influenced by, probably taken by their parents at this point, actually, but um, influenced by Paul Robeson. So I think it's his foregrounding of questions of racial equality, but also he put them in a very kind of anti-colonisation kind of context, in a very international context. It wasn't just a local sort of welfare or something context. It was very much about power and empire and, you know, racial inequality. Um, So that's the most important. But I think also he was very, um, gave a real lift both to the peace movement at the time and to certain trade, some of the large trade unions like the waterside workers and the building workers and some of those big unions. And of course, there's the opera house singing, and which is the thing that's remembered best because, because it appeared on ABC television for years, a little clip. And I think of him singing at the opera house sort of symbolised somehow 
Well, people got to love the Opera House and they got to know that he was the first person who sang there, at, not at the actual Opera House, but at the construction site. So it sort of has implications about workers, you know, the importance of workers, the builders, the people who actually built the Opera House, as well as, you know, the fact that it was, I mean, he's a singer, Opera House is for singers. So it kind of all, it all gelled in a way. Well, we actually have a little clip here of Paul Robeson performing at the construction site of what would be the Sydney Opera House. So here's some audio from that day. So we're just going to have a little listen. He must know something, but don't say nothing. He just keeps rolling. He keeps on rolling along. He don't plant taters, he don't plant cotton. Then that plants and he's soon forgotten. But old man river, he just keeps rolling along. You and me, we sweat and strain. Body all aching and racked with pain. Tote that barge, lift that bale. Show a little grit and your land's in jail. But I keep laughing instead of crying. I must keep fighting until I'm dying. And old man river. He'll just keep rolling And what a roar <laughs> from the crowd. It's amazing, isn't it? What do you feel when you hear that voice? Oh, I think it's just fabulous, actually. And, and a lot of people do. They react to the sort of the depth of it and the sort of I don't know, something about the voice. Um, there's a new book out called Paul Robeson's Voices and very it's quite musicological and technical, but it's about there's something about that voice that people really respond to at a very sort of almost physical level. But on top of that, you've got your knowledge of the person and his values and so on. So it's all that in together. I mean, the other thing when you were saying what's important, the concerts themselves were huge successes. So people who went to them still remember them. I mean, I've had so many people write to me and say, I remember going to the concert when I was, you know, 10. <laughs> it's not usually people older than that because it's so long ago. But um, the concerts themselves, I think, were very stirring. And when you read the, the, music, the music critics in the newspapers, they were all, you know, couldn't, couldn't be praise enough. It's quite interesting when you consider that politically he wasn't popular, but as a singer, they just responded. Because it's just also that emotion in his voice. You can almost yeah. feel the performance of it in how he sings. It's so rich. How did the couple, because you talk about Paul Robeson, but you also mention his wife as, of course you do, because you're one of the great things you do in history is make sure that women aren't written out of it. So Eslanda, of course, um, tours with him. How did they um, become involved or what, what were their views of the political situation here in Australia? Well, they're quite critical of they're critical of quite a lot of things, like the White Australia policy. They're critical of keeping China out of the UN. They're critical of Aboriginal conditions. But they're also very they say nice things anyway to the peace movement and the union trade union movement that they're talking to. So they're kind of pro activist, critic and but critical in general. But I think 
It's later. It took me a while to get onto her, actually. But I did think, you're quite right, I did think I've got to look at her. She was here too. She wasn't just helping him. She was... Um, she gave a lot of public lectures, and when you some of them are on um, being recorded, they're very powerful lectures. And she usually talked a lot about Africa because she was an expert on Africa, a lot about the UN, um, and a lot about the civil rights movement in the US. They're her three kind of topics, and she gave them mainly to audiences of women, hundreds of women in each capitals in each city that they went to. So she has, and and on top of that, she did quite a lot of interviews. Very interesting radio um, interviews, which um, are quite remarkable. Um, she's a very forthright person. I don't think she's so as much... He's very charming. She's not particular... I mean, she's sort of charming, but she's, she'll say what she thinks and she doesn't care if she upsets people particularly. Um, but it's interesting because I was originally going to call the book The Last Tour and then a friend said to me, that's boring, Anne, you don't want to call it that. And I thought meeting the Robesons gets it much better because it's really about the people who met both of them and how it affected the people who met them. So it's partly about what Australia and New Zealand were like at the time, how they changed a little bit at least as a result of this visit and what we can learn about Australia and New Zealand through the Robeson visit. Is it too much of a spoiler to ask what it was, what that impact was? What impact did they have on Australia and New Zealand, on the people who met them? Um, well, I think on the sort of left-wing socialist, communist, trade union people a lot. I think they felt, wow, this fantastic, famous person is, you know, on our side. That, that's sort of their feeling. I think other people... Musical people, people who loved the music were also affected. They could hear him. In, they kept saying things. They say, we've heard him on records, we've seen him on film, we've heard him on radio, but there's nothing like hearing him in person. There was a really strong sense of a personal, um, that that was a big thing for them to hear him in person. Just like now, I suppose, people are going to go and hear Taylor Swift or whatever. You know, they're, they're going to hear people in person and that, that's a big thing. So there's that side to it too. <sighs> What, one of the things, though, is that Island is not very well remembered. And when she died five years later, that wasn't, it wasn't remembered in the Australian press or anything. So part of my book was also to remember her. Like, he's, very, he's remembered and I'm, I'm working with that, but I'm also saying she should be remembered as well. I love how you rewrite women back into the story. Uh, I suspect he would not have been nearly as um, uh, successful if he hadn't have had her by his side in many ways. So it's wonderful to sort of see them as a, as a couple and as a team uh, in the way that you've constructed that. I did want to ask you a couple of other questions more broadly about mm. your role as an historian. I mean, we've, we've covered a couple of the things that you've, you've looked at, Rottnest Island, Paul Robeson, the Freedom Rides, just to name a few. What is it that draws you to an historical subject that means you're going to spend those, those many <laughs> years delving into the archives um, on it? What is the thing it's that draws hard, you? It's hard to say. And I've got a habit of always developing the next project. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
sorry, I've got a habit of developing the next project before I finish the last one, which is a very bad habit. Um, is it? Because I kind of do that too. <laughs> I don't know what it is. And I think each one does come out of the other one. Like the Robeson one comes out of the Freedom Ride book, although there's a delay, but it does come out of the Freedom Ride book. The Rotnest one really comes out of another book I did with Jesse Mitchell called Taking Liberty, which is about self-government and Aboriginal Indigenous rights, which had a lot of West Australian material in it. So that was, and I realised doing that, that Rotnest Island Prison was an important story. But I don't know, I seem to have two sides, I think. One side is wanting to stress the history of activism and challenges to racism and the racial structures that, you know, we live in. And the other side is to, to look at those things much more directly, to to look at, you know, what happened, as it were, in, you know, sort of 19th century British imperial history and how it helped create Australia as a particular kind of place. So I've got those different aspects. Um, I mean, one of them is popular culture. I've had a long interest in popular culture. So in a way, Robeson's book come, touches on some of that earlier interest in popular culture. I used to write things about, or John and Docker and I did about um, Mills and Boone and romance novels and so, you know, all sorts of things. So, um, but they tend to somehow morph into the, to the next thing. There's a link there always. Yeah. When you came into the discipline of history many years ago now, it felt like there was a new generation of historians. And I spoke uh, in the introduction about how history had been at least taught in a very particular way. And it was profoundly influential on my father to discover the writings of your generation of historians, including yourself. Um, And it changed the way he could embrace the idea of history and it, it um, encouraged him to become involved in his own way in, in capturing the history of our, our First Nations um, community. So I was just wondering from your perspective, did it feel like when you were coming into the discipline that, there, that you were bringing in the winds of change or did it feel like it was a bit more of a fight uh, or that you were on the margins? Like what, does it, what did it feel like then? Um, what a good question. <laughs> um, it felt... Well, I'll talk personally, really, that when I chose my um, topic, well, actually, my topic originally, just to go back to this, my PhD topic, was originally about the origins of the White Australia policy. But then I got a supervisor, Mervyn Hartwick, who's actually an expert on Indigenous history and wrote the first PhD in the field, who said, if you're going to talk about racism, you have to talk about um, racism towards Aboriginal people. So it became a study of racism across those two very different circumstances. So it's interesting. I mean, the, the White Australia policy one, they were two different fields and I was trying to work in both of them. And they were both growing at the time from, from a very low base. So there hadn't been that much before, but they were growing. And so, yeah, you did feel like you were part of this new history. And I think another part of it was to value Australian history in the largest sense too. I mean, not always having to go off and do European history or American history, that you could do really big, important history here that's not just thinking of it being local, but it's kind of international. It's a way into an international sort of history. So that, to me, is some of the excitement of using, say, the archival material here to do something of, you know, general importance. 
It's so interesting when you say that. It would be a surprise to a younger audience to hear how narrow Aboriginal history was at the time that you came in as a PhD student, let alone when you were at school, Dad was at school. It was in in that that era that people started to do the work like Peter Reid did on the Stolen Generations. These things were a really big part of Aboriginal experience but were not taught in history books, weren't captured. You were bringing those to life. And I I wonder when you look back now from from the sorts of conversations that are had uh, by historians now and the focus within a, a university mm. in, in a history discipline to where it was when you first walked in, um, how do you describe the change? Well, it changes t- total. <laughs> well, that's, you know, it's in a good way. <laughs> in a good way. I mean, well, it's a much. It became a much bigger discipline, although it's contracting at the moment under various pressures. But became a much bigger discipline, more diverse. But I must say, the, the other big, the huge change, it became a much more female represented discipline. I would say from a very male discipline to one that's fairly equal now or it could even be slightly more female than male, I'm not sure. But certainly women have played a big role in changing the discipline, not only in women's history, which is the obvious way to do it, but in a whole lot of other fields as well, like environmental history and all sorts of things. So so the gender balance is different. Um, and I think... Um, just the historians are more diverse. I mean, we now have Indigenous historians and that didn't have that in in that sense. I mean, we did have historians in Indigenous communities, but not in that academic sense. So that's really changed things. So I, th- I think all those things have made it sort of better <laughs> and more challenging while still remembering what we built on and, and sort of respecting, you know, the work that went before. I think we've helped broaden it out. I was going to ask you that about the, um, of course, one significant change would be the presence now of First Nations historians. Um, and and just acknowledging too, I, I mentioned the impact on my dad. I, dad never did a PhD, but he was very encouraged by you and Anne McGrath and Peter Reid to pick up a cassette player. I think you collectively it encouraged him to get some funding from the Australian Institute for Aboriginal Studies as it was before it became AADS. And off he went into the field with no training as a historian. But, you know, his material became a really important resource for the community. And and he was very inspired by that. But of course, now we have people like John Maynard, who um, is a great favourite of ours here on Speaking Out, um, who's been able to come in and tell Aboriginal history from a very different perspective. I think both in terms of the topics he picks, say, Mm. for example, really deeply understanding the significance of sport, Mm. which has not necessarily been a sexy historian (laughs) subject, Um, but also similarly, I think, in the way that you approach the Freedom Ride book with his book on his grandfather, Mm. being able to match the ability to really be very thorough in the discipline of history while bringing a personal perspective. And I wonder what your reflection is on the contribution that it's making and perhaps the challenge to some of um, the colleague, your colleagues who might have been used to doing history a, a different way to when you walked in the door that this has well, caused. I think they've made, people like John have made a huge difference. And I should, I think I mentioned Shino you did, um, Kenishi, in this context because one of the things that Shino always says is 
this question of biographical approach of treating people as individuals with different histories, not as just representatives of their culture, which he said a lot of um, historians tend to do. They don't individualise their Indigenous um, people they're talking about. So taking people seriously as people and going into them and the complexities of the individual person. And I think that that sort of that insight has been really influenced me, and I think other people like she's um, head of doing this um, Indigenous Dictionary of Biography. So that that thing about gaining knowledge through individual stories um, has made a big difference, and there are a lot of other differences. I think differences, just questions of language, questions of protocols, of um, ethical issues. You know, it's, you, there's a lot of issues really. <laughs> Now, um, finally, you mentioned in passing that you had done a book with John Docker, but of course, <laughs> it does somewhat downplay the role he's had in your life. And one of the things that I, I really love as a friend of yours is the wonderful long relationship you've had with John. Um, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you first met him and what it's been like <laughs> to spend so many years with the one person. <laughs> oh dear. Well, I've got to, just got to think back now. Well, I mean, i I met John in the late 60s. We started living together in 69, so that's a long time ago, 55 years ago, I think. And, I mean, he's always been a writer and I was and, – and a writer who's done teaching at times – I was more a teacher who did write. Our balance was a bit different, but we're both. You were both a little bit political too. We're both political <laughs> and shared a lot of a lot of work. I mean, particularly on the is history fiction question about the 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 literary nature of history, really, because his background is in literary criticism, um, and the other area was in the questions of genocide and genocide theory and its applicability to Australia and those questions. So. So we had certain areas we worked at in common and other things we've been entirely independent, So, which I think is nice, that we can work together but we don't always work together. Um, and how you stay with someone so long, I don't know. <laughs> it's just you do. It is uncommon. I don't have many friends who've been with the same person for that length of time. Um, you just seem to laugh a lot together. Yeah, so we still enjoy ourselves. Here we are in our little house in Glebe, you know, and now both retired in theory but still writing and still researching and doing those things. So, so yeah, I don't know what to say. It's, it's, it's very good. I'm very, I think I'm very lucky. Well, I think he's lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're both lucky. Um, and thank you so much for coming in and spending some time with us on Speaking Out. I've been such an admirer of your work for such a long time and I hope through the conversation people will have picked up just what a big influence you've been on two generations of my family um, and it's been wonderful to share some of the things that I love about you and your work with a broader audience. Well, thank you and I could return all those compliments. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. That's historian Anne Kerthoys. She has researched, taught and published on many aspects of Australian history, including feminism, race and historical writing. At the moment, she's exploring the significance of a visit to Australia by African-American musician and activist Paul Robeson in the 1960s. We'll leave you with some music from Robeson himself. Here he is singing Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming, but carry me home. 
show for now. Join us again next time when I'm joined by ABC's former Indigenous Affairs editor, Bridget Brennan. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Sarah Allerley and Jay McAllister, and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.